0: Good morning, church, and Happy New Year. Um, I hope you are sharing your uh, thoughts and desires about the new year with your family and your friends and, of course, your your church family as well uh, for what your desires are. We typically call those things uh, New Year's resolutions uh, or just maybe just hoping for a better 2024. Um, Myself, hoping maybe a little less um, self-pity and uh, just less complaining. These, these verses that we just hold dear to our hearts and are familiar with, such as do everything without complaining and arguing, we need each other to hold each other accountable to that, don't we? Uh, we often don't recognize when we have those, those attitudes. Uh, but I hope you'll share that with, with each other, uh, hold each other accountable to that. That accountability is, is a firm thing that each and every one of us needs. I've been reading uh, General Grant lately from the Civil War, And he had somebody hold him accountable, named Rollins, to not drinking. He was prone to getting drunk frequently um, in different times, and he needed somebody to hold him accountable to not drinking. And it's part of his story that he was successful for almost the entirety of the war, Uh, but he still had times where where he faltered, and the historical record on that's kind of shaky, of course, but... Um, he had someone hold him accountable and, and had him go through that. And we need each other uh, throughout this next year. So I encourage you to open up to your family, open up to each other. And that can't happen unless you've got face-to-face time with people, right? Face-to-face time with people to explain to them what's going on in your world and what you need held accountable to. Well, today we're going to be going through Elihu's last speech, um, It's mostly in chapter 37, as well as the end of chapter 36. Um, He has three different things we're going to be going over today. They're really kind of all synonyms. To behold God, to listen to God, and to fear God. Um, All things in which he has really already told us, but he tells us afresh. He gets about six different chapters. God gets four chapters. Um, God is a little more simpler to understand in his four chapters chapters that he that he gives to Job. There is a similarity between the story, Holy Scripture story of Job and the four gospels. As the gospel story is told according to four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so is Job's God breathed holy scripture story told by four people. Three unhelpful friends and one prophetic figure named Elihu. But unlike the fourfold gospel of truth, only Elihu speaks rightly on God's behalf. There's a recurring agenda of those who doubt the four gospel writers as if they were like Job's three friends. Wrong. Maybe some fable mixed with history 2,000 years ago. But that is not so. The fourfold gospel has four witnesses, Revealing the same story. Jesus' life and teaching. That's a summary of the four Gospels. His life, of course, his death and resurrection, as well as his teaching. These three friends of Job, not Elihu, but the three friends of Job are rebuked at the end of Job. They are indeed wrong. The scripture tells us they are wrong. But who else is wrong? Job himself is wrong. Elihu <laughs> is the only one that escapes unscathed, not rebuked by God. All three friends and Job are rebuked, they are repent, and they are restored. We're not given a lot of the details of, a, of Job's three friends afterwards, but we know that Job prays for them in order for them to be restored. We know that Job does repent. And so, I don't want you to just see that in the story. I want us to apply that to our own lives. And I, don't, I want to challenge you to not write off people who have spoken wrong things one time. Don't just write them off. Give them a second chance. Um, offer that forgiveness. Recognize that maybe you haven't heard the rest of the story. In particular, when there is forgiveness that is offered. Although it's a lot, I'm sorry, when there is a forgiveness that is asked of. And it's a lot easier to give that forgiveness when somebody asks for it. But are we still called to forgive even when people don't ask for it? And how many times are we supposed to do that? Just keep on going, right? Seven times seven, or seven times in a day, I believe the Gospel of Luke says. it's just You just keep on going with that forgiveness. And so we're going to go to Elihu today to rightly reflect on and be prepared for what our own personal sufferings are, what our own pain is. And that's what Job is trying to answer. He's an illustration for how to deal with life, whereas Ecclesiastes and Proverbs gives it, to, gives it to us more directly. Job is an illustration of what to do with the pain in our life. This is the question that is asked that we would ask and that is presented as a problem where first in genesis 3 the enduring effects of the fall specifically meted out against women and child rearing against men in their work both of those are given what pain and the solution of course is ultimately found in the new covenant job says i know my redeemer lives the permanent long-term solution to that pain is found in the new covenant. Let's look at chapter 37, verse 1. He says, At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of place. Trembling isn't something we often think about in our relationship to the Lord. But at what does your heart tremble? I believe he is asking us to behold God. When you behold God, is there a form of fear and trembling and a healthy way of respecting God? Before we ask the question of what is Elihu trembling at, I want us to know and to think on what does your heart tremble at? Does your heart tremble at the Lord? Is there a demeanor in your heart that stems from the tenderness of the gospel touching it to trembling? Or are you somebody who has this tendency to be hurt in your heart, bitter, angry, self-pity? Are you able to tremble because you have a tender heart towards the Lord, towards the God who is our sovereign creator and Savior? Isaiah concludes his 66 chapters by talking about trembling. Just listen to the last few verses in his last chapter. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. But in all of that, this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That holds you fast. And when you're reading that in your quiet time, you just close your Bible and have your quiet time with your Bible closed. Because where's the word of God? It's now hidden in your heart. It's afresh in your mind. And yes, the word of God is the foundation of our relationship with the Lord and knowing who he is. But so much of our quiet time is also praying and responding to God and his word and the promptings of his spirit. And so we would pray, Lord, help me to tremble at your word. Lord, I have hidden your word in my heart. Help me to respond to it. There are two things that we should all be amazed at and tremble at. One, I am amazed that I will stand before God one day as not a sinning sinner. That is amazing. I will stand before a holy God. What was Isaiah's response in the beginning of his book? Woe well, is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live a people, live among a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord God Almighty. He's got a foretaste of it. He was touched with that coal and representing the cleansing of the new covenant foretold. Tremble at that. Second thing we tremble at is that I am now currently. Also humbled and tremble in amazement that I still sin against God all these years of my life, brothers. This must not be. With our mouth comes cursing and blessings of God. Can you get from one spring fresh water and salt water? But what do we draw encouragement from? From your persistent sanctification knowing that the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. And I praise the Lord that he's got me in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands, but he's also got me in his hands. In the center of his will, on that narrow path, not a perfect life, obviously. We're sitting here amazed that we still sin. We tremble at that. But then we know the gospel truths. We know that we have been given that forgiveness in Christ. And so both of those things are what we tremble at. What is Elihu trembling at? Well, I believe that verse 1 here in chapter 37 serves as a transition from the previous paragraph to the next whole chapter. But I want to look with you at three things from the previous paragraph, starting in chapter 36, verse 24. We left off our last time going through Elihu in verse 23 of chapter 36. We're going to pick up today in 36, 24. We're going to see how we are to tremble at God. And what is Elihu trembling at? The first thing he is trembling at, the first thing he is trembling at is beholding God's work in creation. Follow along with me as we read verses 24 through 29 first. Remember to extol his work, of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable, for he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist and rain which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? (coughs) Beholding God's work in creation is going to be a recurring theme that you're going to see in this section of Job that Elihu mentions here and there. He's going to especially mention it in chapter 37. It's going to be the primary argument that God uses in his argument with Job. We behold God as the creator, And are we going to stop long enough to see that, to see how he has worked in creation? Are we then going to, as verse 24 says, even sing about it? Psalm 19 is one of those foundational psalms that explains to us how God has revealed himself in creation through common grace, through general revelation, but it moves on, the psalm progresses to show us how God has especially revealed himself through his word, through special revelation, through saving grace. We know that, to, that the word then became flesh, and what is our response to that? But, the psalm, but Psalm 19 starts out kind of softly, letting us see that God is the one who is the creator, and here also, especially in verses 27 to 29, can you just observe the weather, the powerful weather, which we have no control over, although it's awesome to look at the weather app and see what the weather is going to be the next day, or the next five days. Like, I feel like, like a prophet, right? <laughs> like, what's the weather going to be like? It is an awesome thing, and I'm so privileged and, and excited that we live in that age where we can know what the weather is going to be. We, we orient our lives around it, don't we? But who's in charge of it? Not you, not me. We read it as if, yes, this is what the weather will be like tomorrow. (laughs) We're just reading what, what the weatherman said, right? We're not in charge of it. God is the one who's in charge of it, and do you respond in praise and song to him? Verse 26 says, behold, God is great, and we know him not. Well, we realize then that God is infinite. The number of his years are unsearchable. We are limited. In the words of Ecclesiastes, we live under the sun. In the terms of of military terms, we're, we're not the general in charge. We're the soldiers in God's army. He is in charge. And even though we know him not completely, do we know him? By saying that his ways are unsearchable doesn't mean we can't know him. We do know him, even though we don't know him completely, because he is infinite and we are limited. Rob had prayed through a couple verses in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John is a foundational book, like Psalm 19 is in the Old Testament. 1 John is a book that is foundational for our faith, a basic that we never leave. Right before those verses that Rob prayed about not loving the things in this world is a poem, maybe even a song, that John wrote that talks about knowing him. Listen to this. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. He then repeats it using synonyms and a little bit more force. I write to you, little children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And this wonderful conclusion, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. Why are you strong? Because the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Not, of course, in our own efforts, but by God's efforts. And so, look at creation and then stand in amazement and behold the fact that you know who. You know the creator. Don't just look at it in this general form of there is a God. There's a lot of deistic people out there. Just believe in God in general. We, which God do you believe in? What's your answer? How would you answer that? Well, the God in the Bible, the triune God, the one true God, the most succinct answer, the God who created the heavens and the earth. That's the God I worship. That's the God who has also saved me. So we behold God's work, his creation. We behold, him, behold his creating me, but also recreating me in the image of God, in the image of Christ. Next in verses 30 and 32, we tremble at the fact that we behold God as judge. Listen to verses 30 through 32. Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. In light of your sufferings, as you think of your sufferings, as you think of your pain, some of it that just won't go away until the new heavens and the er, new earth. Don't forget to continually see and behold that God is judge. May you even see this in creation in your own circumstances, as you do look at the weather, something as simple as that, how you're not in charge of it, how you see that the power of a rainstorm, the power of thunder, we're supposed to get like, Three inches in the next two days. That's a lot of rain. There's a lot of um, power from God represented in that. It also here, though, talks about God giving food in abundance. By contrast, we know that there are times when there is a lack of food. Can we say that a lack of food is, is God's judgment in someone's life? Not in any particular circumstance, but does that happen under the sun? Absolutely. God is the one who is in charge. He does He does have these prejudgments before the final judgment. This idea of standing before God as our judge, beholding him as judge, is a theme that we find in the wisdom literature. You're familiar with the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, and we use scripture to interpret scripture, and in this instance, it's even more powerful because we're in the same genre, or in the genre of the wisdom literature. Listen to the teacher, which is King Solomon, his conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. A great summary of the wisdom literature. For this is the whole duty of man. And then he brings this line. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He says, yes, you can continue to live your life and give your own excuses, but know that you are still called to fear God and keep his commandments. And there is judgment, whether good or evil. Where's the first time we saw that phrase, good and evil? In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. We tend to think that We are good judges of good and evil. But in fact, we are not. The serpent told Eve, you will know good from evil. God never really affirms that. Yes, we do know evil now, but how good are you? How good are we at discerning good from evil? Yes, we know some things are absolutely right and some are wrong, and we have the assurance of God's word to make that clear. But aren't there some times where there's a gray area? Aren't there times where you do something that you think is right, but it ends up, in fact, being wrong. God is the one who is the judge, but too often we try to take that from him and act as if we're the judge, as if we can decide what is right and what is wrong. You know, whatever God does, just because he does it, it is right. It's not arbitrary. Whatever he does is righteous. He is the one that determines what is right and what is wrong, and we tremble before that. We behold that God is the judge, and we cannot forget that. And we should be reminded of that as we even look at creation, as we look at the circumstances in our lives, maybe as sometimes forms of prejudgment, that God is warning us. In verse 33, he takes it a little bit farther. And we behold God's presence felt in judgment. We don't just see him as judge, but behold his presence It's crashing declares what? His presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. Let's leave the cows alone and look at him declaring his presence in judgment. Habakkuk 3.2 says that in wrath, remember mercy. In his judgment, he remembers mercy. This is demonstrated As God is with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 during judgment. As he's having a conversation with them. As he disciplines them and kicks them out of the garden. What does he do? As Adam and Eve try to clothe themselves with plants. when You you cut a plant and you cut a leaf and it withers. God kills an animal, likely a sheep. Clothes them by the shedding of blood, foretelling the real covering that they need, body, soul, and mind, with the blood of Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and isn't still dead, who came back to life three days later. God disciplines those he loves, so do not make light of his discipline. Do not make light of his discipline. And this is actually a foreshadowing of what's happening for the four chapters with Job, starting in verse, in chapter 38. How does the Lord speak to Job? Out of the whirlwind. Out of the storm. And God is taking his finger and he's shoving it in Job's face and he's chewing him out for four chapters. You have no right to question me, Job. Who are you to do that? Does Job feel the presence of the Lord? Does he repent? Absolutely. He doesn't show anything anymore says he puts his hand over his mouth i've spoken too much reminding us of james and the world of evil that is set on fire by the tongue let's focus now on chapter 37 Elihu has said that his heart is trembling, his heart is pounding within him because he is listening to God and he wants you to keep on listening to God. I want you to look at five different things in this entire chapter. Chapter 37 has five different things that he's telling us over and over again to listen to God. First, in verse 2, he says to keep listening to his commands. It says, keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. The NIV has listened there twice with an exclamation point. Keep on listening. This is the characteristic of a Christian who doesn't just listen one day a week doesn't just listen in the mornings when he's reading the word or in the evenings before they go to bed. We're constantly listening to God. But this language here really is describing for us, we look back to Deuteronomy as far as Job is after Deuteronomy. We look back and we're reminded of what? Of the Lord revealing himself to his people on Mount Sinai with thundering voice, with the rumblings it's something to tremble at as you listen to God. Where there is an audible voice of the Lord before the written Ten Commandments, they're audibly given to the Israelites, and they couldn't handle it. Please give us a representative, the Israelites say. Keep on listening throughout the day to the Lord's Ten Commandments, to obey them, and to repent of it when we get it wrong. So we keep on listening We don't just see the Ten Commandments and the law of the Lord or the book of Deuteronomy as something that's not God's word. It is foundational in our lives. The next thing we see is in verses 3 through 7. And in verses 3 through 7, he gives us this repeated theme to keep on listening to his voice in creation. He's already mentioned that. We went over that a little bit. chapter 36. God is going to make that as one of his primary arguments. I'm in charge of this world. He's made it. Read along with me in verses three through seven. Under the whole heaven, he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. And We need to stop long enough to listen to God in creation. This is what we saw in Psalm 19. This is a repeated theme. We're not going to look at every verse in chapter 37. But this is an excellent example of keeping on listening to God and listening to His voice in creation. Yes, especially listen to His voice in His Word. But here it's saying, look, as you're out and about in your world, in His world, listen to God's voice. Recognize that He is the one who is in charge of this world. Let's jump down to verses 12 and 13. And learn that we can trust the one that we are listening to. Verses 12 and 13 say this. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them. On the face of this habitable world. Whether for correction, or for his land, or for love. He causes it to happen. This tells us that we can trust the one that we're listening to. He is the one who guides. He is the one who corrects. And I believe the best way to understand this word love is he is the one who forgives. The word here is kesed, one of the most important Old Testament Hebrew words to know. This is God's covenant-keeping love, often translated as his loving kindness or mercy. In the context of Job, who was going to be forgiven? Job's three friends. Job himself will be forgiven. There's no long-term relationships without forgiveness. And God is demonstrating even the gospel of forgiveness here in this story of Job. But too often, we fail that trusting in God. Listen to Isaiah chapter 30 uh, verses 15 and 16 and 17. Just can turn there or you can just listen to it. It says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. That's a great line, isn't it? There are many verses in the Bible that just make a lot of sense by themselves. And this verse is totally true as it stands. In repentance and rest, you will be saved, and in quietness and trust is your strength. But it goes on to describe our human condition. But you would have none of it. (laughs) You would have none of it. You were unwilling. No, you said, we will flee upon our horses. Therefore you shall flee away. We will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are all left like a flagstaff on top of the mountain, like a signal on a hill. We can trust the one who is speaking to us, who we listen to, because he offers forgiveness. We know where our salvation is found. And when you listen to that verse, and repentance and rest is your salvation, and quietness and trust is your strength. Put it on a wall, put it on your doorpost, right? But then it says, you will have none of it. Doesn't that just describe that fleshly nature that we have? How too often we are like Israel, who is really an example of what not to do. Let's move on to verse 14. He says, Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. In order to hear God, in order to listen to him, the fourth thing is that you must slow down. You must stop. The principle of Sabbath rest competes with this hurriness that we have in our life. It's a lifelong battle to try to slow down. I remember reading a commentary's introduction. I think it was the conclusion, uh, or whatever. It was his, uh, his pre-notes, and he's like, this was like 150 years ago. And uh, he said, this would have been done sooner if I just wasn't so busy. And I'm like, "Whoa, oh, they were busy 150 years ago? <laughs> we thought we were busy. They're, it's the human condition. We must stop And it's not just about stopping all the time. It's not even just about finding the balance between rest and getting things done. It's really about finding a rhythm. Because there are things that are urgent. There are things that are important. There are times when we need that rest. I like to put it as work comes before play. And then what comes after that is rest. Work, play, rest. This is a great rhythm to have in your life. If we don't stop, we're not going to hear from the one who is our creator. If we don't stop and acknowledge him, maybe we'll hear from him, but maybe we won't trust in him. If we stop long enough, we're going to observe his greatness. Surely it takes discipline to listen to the the Lord's word preached every week. And in every sermon you're going to hear and you're going to see an arrow pointing to God's greatness. We stop long enough to go through the Psalms, such as Psalm 139. We ask the Lord to search us, to try us, to see if there's any offensive way in us. And he is our creator, and so he knows us best. I want to point out to you Psalm 139, verse 14. This is a a verse that we often use for the sanctity of human life, rightly so. It often goes, and we simply quote it in, in shorthand by saying that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But the context of that verse tells us that being fearfully and wonderfully made is the secondary meaning in that verse. It is not the primary meaning. The primary meaning is not that we are great, of course, but that who is great? God is great. We need to stop long enough. We need to look at verses in their context, read all of Psalm 139, And we see that the emphasis isn't on how we are made wonderfully, not that we are wonderful, but that we are made wonderfully. The emphasis is on the creator and not the creation. So yes, it is correct to point to the fact that we are made in the image of God, that there is value to all human life. I want you to listen to the messages version of Psalm 139, 14. I think it's helpful. Says, I thank you, high God, because you are breathtaking. That's his first sentence with an exclamation point. Here's his second sentence with an exclamation point. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. Exclamation point. Third sentence, I worship and adoration. What? A creation. The emphasis is on God. I like that they don't use the word fearful that I am only marvelous. Because theologically speaking, who is to be feared in the scriptures? Not man, but God. This is kind of an anomaly to say that man is fearful. No, who is fearful? It is God. And if there's anything that's awesome about us, it's because of who our creator is. And yes, we are made body and soul. We are made different than the rest of creation. We are made to worship him in adoration, who is our creator. We must stop long enough. We must slow down. Otherwise, we will be tempted to think that we are great. We will be tempted to think that we can be the judge. He says to Job in verse 14, Hear this, Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. May we have that rhythm this year to work, play, and then rest. The fifth thing I want us to see comes from verse 15, and that is that you can miss the obvious. Verse 15 says Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know this? Do you see this? Do you see the obvious? In Isaiah 40, verses 28. And following, he says, "Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Don't miss this obvious fact and live in light of it. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He is the one who gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not be faint. Hebrews 2 1 gives us a warning to pay much more closer attention to what you have already heard. Yes, that sanctification is growing in knowledge of God, knowing more about him, but there's so much to be said for taking what you already know and just obeying that. That's hard enough, isn't it? I love the beginning of the new year because it challenges all of us, as Rob did this morning, predictably, to challenge us to make sure that we are spending time alone with the Lord. Um, in youth group, to kick off the year this during the discipleship hour, we're going to spend a couple weeks or, or months, we'll see how it goes, in talking about how to have a quiet time. I'm going to ask many of you to come in to give your testimonies, and not just your salvation testimony. Give it for 30 seconds and a minute, so be prepared. And come in and, and tell some of the youth, how do you have a quiet time? As I tell people that we're doing that, they're like, Man, I wish someone told me that when I was a teenager. Don't miss the obvious. You find someone once told me, you find someone who's engrossed in some sort of sin years later, and you find out that no doubt what's not in their life, regular time with the Lord, it's gone. Verse 18 says, can you like him spread out the skies, hard as cast metal iron? We too often can act like we are in charge of our lives. We're missing the obvious. He is in charge. He is the one who's in charge of our lives. And too often we don't see everything we have, including the breath in our lungs, as being simply something that we are stewarding. Paul says in Corinthians, it is required of steward they be found faithful. You are required to be found faithful with the gifts that God has given you. Too often, though, we like to make up our own rules. We like to miss God's obvious rules and we like to make up our own rules. I want you to listen to people's conversations as you interact with them on spiritual topics and see what kind of rules they've added to God's Word. They've come up with their own rules for how to live with their lives, and so have we sometimes. In fact, one of the most popular books out there today is a self-help book by Jordan Peterson entitled, 12 Rules for Life. It's like the number one bestseller. Most people have heard of Jordan Peterson. In fact, it's so funny, he came out with another book, 12 More Rules for Life. The man is very wise, and my point is not to comment on Jordan Peterson, whether he's a Christian or not. He's somebody who actually uses the Bible as one of his primary sources of authority, somebody who I would describe as somebody who sees Jesus as the ultimate guru. But it's not a book you find on uh, the pastors recommending to read and and understanding God's word better. He's he's what you would call a stoic. He's a wise man. But he's come up with his own rules. And in talking with different people, I, it's just amazing to see how they've come up with their own rules. Me and God got it worked out. Really. God is the one in charge. And you could summarize God's conversation with Job starting in verse, chapter 38 from Romans 9, 16. The familiar illustration, the familiar imagery of does the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? So before we go to the third point, I want to leave you with this very challenging statement. In listening to God, will you first of all submit to his will for your life? Will you submit to it? And that's actually the easy part. Kind of like giving 10% of your money. I mean, that's just the easy part. You want to check? Here you go. That's the easy part in sanctification. Living it out, that's the hard part. Step one is submitting to God. What step two is, is embracing God's will for your life. Submit to it. That's step one. You've got to have the right demeanor. For whatever that pain is, whatever that suffering is in your life, but then to embrace it, I think that's a lifetime goal, is it not? You love talking to the, the saint who's lived their life for decades and decades, and, and they're, they're embracing God's will for their lives. That doesn't mean that you are grateful for all your circumstances in your life. I want to be clear on that. There is real pain and evil that we are not to be grateful for. It's evil. It's bad. But can you be grateful in those circumstances? Yes, you can acknowledge those circumstances, and you can still worship God. We conclude with the recurring theme that you would expect from the wisdom literature is to fear God, and this is how Elihu concludes his speech. Listen to verses 22 to 24. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own eyes. This phrase, we cannot find him, is similar to the phrase that you found in chapter 36, verse 26. God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. It means that God is infinite. Maybe there's a a hint here at the Trinity, knowing that we experience and we see God through his Son, and as we experience the Holy Spirit, we find him in that way. We interpret that we cannot find him in light of the new covenant where Jesus then even calls us his friends as we are his brothers and sisters, Hebrews says. So we do keep in mind the fourfold gospel in light of this statement that this isn't the end of the Bible. And we do fear him. We do not say we are wise in our own eyes. We hardly ever know the why of anything. Except that it is to bring glory to God. But we are given sufficient answers. We are given sufficient explanations as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We will be satisfied. And that's the description of every single believer. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that each and every one of us here would get into that rhythm of work and then play and then rest, that we would stop long enough to consider you, to listen to you, to behold you, that you would help us to fear you, Lord. That we would then submit to your will for each and every one of our lives. That you would help us in the impossible task of embracing your will for each and every one of our lives every single day of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.